From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is John Lobenstein. John Lobenstein, I'm the director of agronomy for Montgomery County Revenue Authority. We've got uh, nine golf courses here uh, just right outside of D.C. Before we get to my conversation with John, let me thank my sponsor, Dryject, that's been with me from the beginning in 2015. I walk on over 100 golf courses per year across the country, and I can always tell when a superintendent really understands how sand-based systems work. And often the best superintendents use Dryject sand injection services. Getting coarser particles fully injected will improve drainage and help develop firmer surfaces. Contact your local Dryject representative or visit dryject.com. John, it is so great to have you here, and I'm so sorry it's taken so long for us to chat because I've been, as you know, a big fan of your work down there from the couple of times I got to visit years ago working with Civitas and seeing what you were doing and at the time under pretty serious pressure for a potential pesticide restriction that apparently did not come to fruition, but How does one ultimately work for Dean Graves for four years at this posh joint uh, over there in Chevy Chase and go to a collection of munis? (laughs) And and were were you ready from the posh circumstances over there at Chevy Chase? And Dean was a man ahead of his time, as you know, right? Really progressive, always trying new things. Great place to learn. I don't think I've ever met anybody that worked for Dean Graves that I wouldn't want to have on this podcast because generally they're out there doing the same kind of stuff Dean helped train them to do. So big shout out to your mentor. How did you get from a nice country club operation to a muni operation? Yeah. So, yes, first and foremost, Dean was an amazing mentor, uh, taught me a lot. And, um, you know, I was at the point where I wanted to take a step somewhere and uh, of the jobs available, it was the site visit I had over with Montgomery County Golf with the superintendent at the time um, that just kind of really blew me away with his connection to staff, to the industry, to uh, moving things forward and making things better. And we wanted to bring some of that private club feel to these little muni golf courses that really are ahead of their time in a lot of ways, man. We're producing some great golf courses in a tough environment for not a lot of money. I would say I'd rank it among the toughest environments to grow really good grass. But before you even got the Dean, it didn't appear turf was in your future because you were at in Lawrence, Kansas, not working for the GCSA, studying Spanish of all things, on your way to Costa Rica for a year. Uh, how did it happen you even showed up at Dean's door? Yeah, so the crazy thing is, so after my uh, Spanish degree, after studying at the University of Costa Rica to finish that, and then I was kind of bouncing around doing odd jobs because I didn't find something for that Spanish degree right away. A buddy of mine and uh, and I were doing some landscaping. We started playing golf that summer, and, and then I saw an ad in the newspaper for a job at Chevy Chase Club on the grounds crew. I'm like, hey, cool. That sounds like it's combining the best of both worlds of these things I like to do now. And so I went in suit and tie and went to interview at uh, Chevy Chase for this grounds crew job and uh, got it. And the rest is history. So the Spanish has probably served you well. Oh, man, it's great. You really connect. We're predominantly Latino staff. Mm-hmm. When I first got on board, I translated our employee handbook into Spanish. That's and uh, so 
you know, fluent and, and it's really, it's, it, it's a nice, nice way to connect with the teams and, and really meetings, memos, all that kind of stuff. I can make sure everything's getting communicated to, uh, to everyone properly. You know, the other thing too, a lot of people learn Spanish and I want to say we ought to have a turf grass science training program soup to nuts in Spanish somewhere in this country to begin to create a path for people who English isn't their first language to actually get going in this industry even before they learn the language fully, right? I mean, yes. beyond that, one of the things I've noticed that have made some of even my students when they've come out of Cornell and worked on crews really successful is the cultural aspect, right? You studied yeah. Spanish. You, you didn't just study the language, right? I mean, you studied the history sure. of these things and the culture of these things. Can you talk for a minute to folks that might be listening about the value of knowing that culture, recognizing that culture, validating that culture in some ways and how that contributes to that environment that you, I know, set up so well for them? Yeah. And I, and I think you get exposed to it by by taking these classes and, and going through the emotions, whether it's college courses or whatever, living in that culture, first and foremost, it was just very eye-opening and it was, I was so welcomed and it was very easy to just kind of fit in with the culture in Costa Rica. You know, it just expands your horizons, man, because we get so stuck in the U.S. way of doing everything. And mm -hmm. most of the world seems to have things figured out a little bit better, you know, but. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, you walked right into it and I, feel free to not answer. But when you know, like I know, as a member of this industry, how reliant we are on the Latino, Latinx mm -hmm. community for our workforce in so many places where I visit and knowing the attitude about immigration the issues with the border, the way these people have been demonized. I imagine particularly for you and your staff, this can be a painful time. Yeah, you know, things like this come up and I think we, we go back to embracing our staff and letting them know that what's important to us is is our people. You know, we don't let the chatter in the news kind of get in the way of what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. Well, that's all well and good. But eight <laughs> facilities, all right? I mean, with, nine, you know, let, nine. nine. Okay, so let's put it in perspective. That sort of mentality of creating a culture that people can thrive in, and Tyler Bloom talks a lot about this, you're doing it at multiple facilities where, like you said, there's not enough money. Still the same work, right? You work in sure. crappy weather. You got to grind. People aren't always pleasant. And it may not be the best pay, but it may be an immunity environment. The benefits are really good. How do you do it across multiple operations like this? And I've got, just so you know, full disclosure, I've been working with the state parks in New York, the 26 state park, 27 state park golf courses, 15 really intensely for the better part of two decades. I know it's not easy when you have, you know, these operations that have some autonomy, but at the same time, there's some consistency that you need to have. How do you manage that across those operations, John? Yeah. So I think the most important part of this for us and what we've been working on for about five or six years now is really building our culture, reinforcing our core values. You know, we want our people to come to work every day with this. It's a genuine smile, right? It's a do anything attitude. It's delivering excellence. These three things that are so important as we go through and you over communicate these things, you continue to reinforce, you know, like a lot of the stuff Tyler Bloom has talked about. It's that same culture building mentality to get everybody on the same board, understanding where the expectations are. Look, we're not going to be Augusta National. We're going to make some damn good golf courses out here. We're going to be efficient. We're going to be safe. You know, we're going to get here every day with a good attitude, man, and, and, uh, and make it happen. Yeah. So again, making that happen means that every one of those facilities, because you're not getting around, are you getting around once a week, maybe? 
No, not even because I, you know, a lot of administrative load. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I got good teams out there and, uh, you know, I, I trust them to do what they need to do to produce the product. And so we're, we're checking in on the phone more often than in person. Mm-hmm. And some facilities, it might be once or twice a month that I'm there. But you're always kind of in touch about, you know, things that are going on. Okay, so you started out at Falls Road. And like a good Muni in an area with a long golf season, you're doing what, 60, 70, 80,000 80, rounds? Yeah, there, there was a year they got up to 72,000. 60,000 was kind of the 10-year average or so right uh, when I was there. Yeah, busy operation there. I was there for just a couple of years before the, the superintendent before me had retired. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, so at the time, the Revenue Authority only owned five golf courses that was 2005 when I got the soup job at Falls Road. A year later, in 2006, we took over operations of four other courses that were being run by the Parks Department. Okay. So we went from five courses to nine courses. And with that opportunity, there was a job created for Director of Agronomy. And so a year after becoming the superintendent at Falls and showing what I could do there, I was selected as the Director of Agronomy. So for the first eight years in that role, I was running Falls Road and overseeing the other properties. So that was a grind in and of itself. Yeah. And then finally, 2014, I hired a superintendent of Falls Road and was able to really make some improvements and, and focus more on bigger picture stuff and get around more than I could before. Okay, so so one of the things that, you know, we want to give the shout out to the Munis here and Will Benson out in Oregon is one of my favorite guys. There's a bunch of you guys that, you know, are out there tweeting golf and the intensity of that golf, right? So from a Muni's perspective, you're working in a government environment, but that environment changed, right? You were hired by like a parks department. And now I thought I heard you say Montgomery County Revenue Association. <laughs> I thought it was recreational. So what what the hell happened? Uh, <laughs> it's the worst name ever. So Montgomery County Revenue Authority is who I work for. Okay, um, That's who hired me. And we own five of the courses and we operate the other four on a long-term lease from the parks department. So I I work for the Revenue Authority. We are unique because we are not funded by the county. We are not, we're an instrumentality of the county and we're kind of quasi-governmental. So we get the benefit of, hey, man, we got the the health benefits and all that stuff, which are phenomenal, right? That's one thing that's great about Muni Golf. Um, But we're, you know, we're a lean and mean operation and we don't need to go through all the layers of bureaucracy for making decisions and getting stuff done that you might at some more state type of jobs. Well, I mean, anybody that's done any reading about a guy named Robert Moses read a book called The Power Broker. And if you ever wanted to know what you could get away with as an authority, that was the book to read because it inhabits a space between government and private sector that affords a little bit of the benefits of both. Are you benefiting? When you're doing more rounds, the authority has a lot more agency over what it can do with the money that you're generating, oh, yeah. right? So is that then good for you, John, in the sense oh, that it's fantastic. It, okay, so you have access to your revenue that oh, if yeah. you do 10,000 more rounds, I mean, you're motivated to do more rounds because yes. you benefit from it, right? So can you talk a little bit about that mindset that you have uh, when it comes to that as an authority, being able to get that money to invest? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we get 100% of the revenue that we make goes directly back into the system. We set aside a percentage for capital reserve for projects and equipment purchases, and we do lots of projections, five-year plans, and and just making sure our funding models are good. Yeah, man, it's just drive the revenue, man. Get the tee times early, get the people in there, because the more money you make, the more you got to spend. It's a pretty easy formula. So golf is healthy in a capital district. 
golf is healthy. Uh, Frank, we did 450,000 rounds of golf last year, and uh, we're doing quite well this year as well. And uh, revenue per round is up. Demand is there. We start to see it taper off a little bit in some of our uh, more rural uh, golf courses. But certainly the COVID boom uh, was incredible for us. It you know, allowed us to make some good investments. We got all GPS sprayers coming on here oh, over the winter and been able to catch up on a lot of small projects and kind of some deferred maintenance from lots of years of tough tough uh, budgeting after the recession in uh, 2009. I'm so glad to hear that because I, I will say 100%, having access to that revenue is really good for your mindset. It's like, hey, yeah, let's get more people out here. Let's figure yeah. out how to get this work done. Now, one of the challenges I know you face, and again, from playing around, particularly on Long Island at Beth Page and out at Montauk and Sunken Meadow, those sorts of places out there, a lot of their extra rounds come at this time of year. People mm. keep playing, John. I imagine in where you are, you never close, right? Unless there's snow coverage and they're going to sleigh ride. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we close on Christmas Day and we close if you can't get on the golf course, snow or right. whatever. So, But yes, we're open all the time and it's 10 or 20 degrees out there and you're still getting 20, 30 players a day at some of these properties and it's pretty crazy. But particularly at this time of year, when you got to get a lot of other things you want to get done, does that limit then some of the things you can do when you've got play later in the year like this? Yeah. And also damage, right? I mean, they're wearing the places out because the grass is still, you know, it's not growing as much as it used to. Yeah, I'm just talking about that this morning with one of our superintendents about, hey, when are we going to get winter tea markers out? These people are starting to damage the, the teas because it's not growing as much right now. And this time of year, you switch gears a little bit. You're doing more rolling, less mowing. So that eliminates one guy in the morning. You're, we're focusing on leaf cleanup and that kind of stuff now. But hey, this is also where we got to start doing some winter projects. We're doing some bunker rebuilds. We try to try to do everything we can in-house as much as we can. We've got lots of resources and equipment to share and stuff, which is really cool. You've got nine golf courses within about 25 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. That's really something that, you know, you talk about the benefits of uh, working in a team environment with all these courses so close together especially sharing people, whether it's aeration day or finishing up a a winter project before a snowstorm or something. Yeah. Well, listen, John, we're going to keep going on this. Let's take a break, uh, listen to a message from our sponsors, and uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk robots, you and me, pal. And then we're going to get to vineyards and organic matter in a minute. But when we (laughs) get back, I'm with John Lobenstein. We'll be right back. I've been pleased to be sponsored the last few years by The Plant Food Company, a family-owned fertilizer manufacturer that started out as Brookside Spreading Services by Edward Platts. He set a tone for professionalism at that time that is still expressed in their products today. Excellent products that meet their customer needs at a fair price and service the heck out of them. If you're putting your nutrient management plan together this fall for next year or getting ready for the golf season in the desert, contact your local plant food rep or visit them at plantfoodco.com. John, welcome back. You mentioned GPS sprayers, and I'm glad to hear that, right? Because we know, depending on how you use it, uh, you know, let's just say you shut it on and off for a minute. And it just sprays some geometry better, right? You get the shape spread better. You're looking at anywhere from 50 to 20%, you know, reduction in product needs, which probably translates to maybe a half a tank, maybe one less tank you have to spray sometimes. Who knows? 
And in your neck of the woods, where you get seven months of snotty weather that, that you got to spray in, that's a good call, brother. And, and I hope over time as an industry, you know, we can put one thing in a tank and spray it variable rate, right? Use yeah. fewer products, put one per tank, and then vary the rate. Like this area needs none, this needs the full rate, this needs yeah. 2X, things like wetting agents that might ultimately save you some water. But we'll leave the sprayers because I know you've been playing around with these Husqvarna robots. Oh, yeah. Talk to me for a minute about why. And then we'll get to sort of the setup and, and what you've been learning. Why, why even bother looking at this? Was it a matter of labor or was it, hey, we should probably try this to see if it could work? Yeah, I think ultimately it comes back to labor. Five years ago, Montgomery County was going to $15 minimum wage, which we got there. Now we're above that. That's a real difficulty budget-wise. So so that was yeah, that, that's the primary uh, reason that we looked at it. You don't want to get rid of anybody, but you also want to make sure that you're using your time most efficiently. And if I got a robot mowing fairways, I can be focused on more detail work that is sometimes tough to get to. Okay. So what'd you do? How'd you set it up? You took a hole, you got a couple of units, wires everywhere, what? Yeah. So I took a seminar at the golf industry show last year with Erwin Lecoq from Winston over there in Germany. Yep. And that's really was like, okay, and I got to do some of this now. So we actually just did a demo this year. We did a four month demo. We got a single Husqvarna 550H EPOS. And so this is the wireless unit. It uses a, a little RTK receiver satellite thing on the side of the fairway. Perfect. So we have a, a one acre fairway. This robot is able to mow an acre a day it kind of just mows Roomba style. It bounces around random patterns and it mows for about 19 hours a day, charges for four or five hours a day. It just keeps on doing its thing. And besides around where the 150 pole is, because the robot uh, doesn't go through that, we did not put a fairway mower on this fairway uh, really since May through October. Uh, one of the things I've learned from playing around with the robot mowers, we've done some evaluations over the years for Consumer Reports. The random pattern is not desirable. Let's talk about that and maybe other things those discriminating golfers at your Montgomery County courses are telling you. What, what did you see and what are you hearing? Yeah, so most of the customers, interesting, a lot of blue collar uh, folks playing this golf course and they always say, hey, you're, you're taking our labor away. What are you doing? And, you know, they don't care about what it looks like. Okay. They care about supporting our staff, which right. is really cool. Yeah, and yeah. we do, right? 100%. The lack of stripes is tough to get used to, but it's interesting that the more upright growth that we see, it's a better lie, especially for some of the seniors that play out here. So you get a little, the ball sits up a little bit nicer, I think, on it. It didn't do so well when we had a cool spring, and then all of a sudden we had this spring flush where ryegrass was going crazy. <laughs> and uh, the little robot had a little trouble keeping up with it for about three weeks. We had some some jagged cuts out here, and once it kind of caught up you know, over the rest of the year, great quality of cut, no real problems besides the RTK satellite uh, thing on the side. We just set it in a, a PVC pole because yeah. it was temporary. Well, one day... It did a 180 and spun around in its pole, which moved the center of that RTK thing about eight inches. Well, that moved the geofence on the fairway eight inches. So we it, we found it cutting into the rough. So it was, for that reason, it was cool to see the precision of it, that it really maintained its boundary. And, you know, you just got to fix that thing. So in chatting with the manufacturers, maybe some conversations you've had. Have you had any conversations? Yeah. Do you think uh, it's long until they can put stripes on them with robots? 
No, I think uh, I think you're going to see that next year. So there's a there's a firmware upgrade that's coming out, I think, in the spring for this unit mm-hmm. that will allow it to at least mow in straight lines or patterns. Mm-hmm. This unit itself doesn't stripe, but there's a larger one called the Siora, which is about triple the size of the 550 that's coming out next year. And it mm-hmm. should have the ability to stripe from what I understand. OK, by the way, that that Siora unit, instead of just mowing one acre, that thing can do up to 12 acres. And it can automatically adjust the height from fairway to rough. So I can say, Sior, this one's going to mow these two holes entirely, rough and fairway, everywhere, and just set it loose. And you don't even think about it. Okay, so what about cost? And then we'll get to scaling it. For example, let's, for just giggles, say you got an acre and a quarter, acre and a half fairway. You're going to need two units uh, per hole. So if what you're saying, particularly at certain times of the year, maybe you could have one unit do that. But for three weeks, it might need some help. So what are the general costs for these units just to do the one acre you were doing? Yeah, so basically the unit costs about 5000 The satellite and, and a solar panel charging uh, station, it's about adds another $2,500. So you're looking at $7,500 per machine, which covers an acre. Mm-hmm. When you get into scaling this, and, and we didn't feel like this one was the right one for us long-term, because when you have things like the Sierra coming out, and there's certainly others that are coming to market, we find that there's more efficiencies where if that's doing 12 acres, but it only costs twenty-five grand, i have just cut my cost in half. So we're going to play around with that next year. Hopefully they're in high demand right now from a demo standpoint, mm-hmm. but want to get our feet around that. And I know we got something coming out from Toro and, and who knows so, what else is coming. That's great to hear. I mean, I, I think overall we're going to have to figure out how to integrate autonomous technology uh, into this industry, whether it's yes. uh, sprayers or mowers. I mean, I, I have people generally touting to me how much auto steer on fairway mowers uh, saves them time. So, you know, we're going to experience autonomy at, at, at some level everywhere in this industry. But your point about the labor, it is this idea, well, let's say we got the change to actually do this. Like you'd probably try it on one whole golf course or at least nine holes next if you felt like you had the technology. I don't think people really appreciate you don't let go of everybody. In fact, you don't want to let go of anybody that currently works for you because, number one, this allows you to make the golf course even better. Number two, these things still need somebody to play around with them. You're going to have to have somebody go around every day, make sure that thing doesn't keep moving. Eight inches is one thing. What about 10 feet if it if a bird knocks it over, an owl runs into it? You know, <laughs> stupid stuff like that happens. So what is your sense? You know, I know you've probably given it a thought. Do you have a list of things that staff will sort of really get to doing, enhancements that you think this will lead to, as well as how many people you think you're going to need to manage 18 holes of robots in the fairways and potentially the rough? You know, from from keeping up with the mowers, I think the daily checks, the equipment manager is able to handle that. It's you're changing blades once a week. They're like two dollars a blade and there's three on each spindle. You know, that's a pretty it's like a five minute change Mm -hmm. per mower. So that's not much. And and keeping up with them, they they let you know, man, you've got a mobile app and it's telling you if this thing is turned upside down, it's telling you if it's if it senses that it's not mowing grass for a period of time. It takes a weather break knowing that uh, it's not doing anything. So it's just saving itself some energy. So interesting. And it's completely off the grid, right? You have it on a solar charger. It's not even connected to power. Yes. And so for us, the demo was actually plugged into our pump house. 
because their Husqvarna, their solar panels were back ordered and still are tough to get. Wow. But yes, in theory, the solar panel can run two charging stations for the 550. What was the general chatter around the lunch table? Yeah, so the I think the crew, they're intrigued. There was, you know, some initial questions about, is this thing taking my job? But they quickly found out that that wasn't the case. And, you know, as you think ahead, to, there's jobs that we'd like to do more often, like fairway divots and, you know, maybe some TLC around some of the, the planting beds and stuff that you, when you're running with an 18-hole course with a crew of, you know, six or seven guys, it's just hard to keep up with some of that stuff. So I think those types of things come back into play and you start looking at other ways to make little improvements. Okay, well, as if you didn't have enough to do, we got a couple of more things to chat about, John, after we take this second break here. I'm with John Lovenstein, the master of all trades, including robotic technology down there in Montgomery County. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. We are finishing our first year with Frost Spray Technology as a sponsor and have been so pleased to hear from listeners how much they have appreciated working with Ken Rost and his team. They provide the type of products that are what you need today and are ready for your needs of tomorrow. A lifelong interest in spray technology led Ken to starting Frost and the innovation keeps coming. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. John, welcome back. Listen, I, I know that uh, you're busy and you're trying things and culture alone takes a lot of time to foster, right? People don't always think about the time we should intentionally take, right? That we started out with talking about the great work environment that you try to create. But if you didn't have enough to do, they slapped you with a vineyard. <laughs> so was this your idea and you're just a glutton for punishment? Because I know you've got a pretty good size collection of kids that you have to tend to. So what's the whole deal with putting a vineyard out there? So not my idea. This is part of a larger project that's going on at uh, Poolsville Golf Course is uh, one of our more rural facilities right now. Uh, it's located in the Agricultural Reserve. 25% of Montgomery County is dedicated to farming and protecting these farms. And it's really cool. Mm. This golf course is going to become kind of a gateway to that ag reserve. Mm. We're building a, an event center uh, with a restaurant and bar and a winery with custom crush so that we can start to process grapes for local farmers who want to take this on and don't have the ability to buy the, the winemaking equipment, which is really the barrier to entry in, in that world. And so the vineyard is going to be partly for supporting events at the facility with wine, but it's also for doing research with University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Their small fruit extension uh, agent, Joe Fiola, is someone I'm working with to start to identify what types of vines do well in this climate, as similar to some of the research they're doing. Uh -huh. Well, that's what I was going to say. My next question was, how thickly are you in involved in this? Because it's right up your alley. Yes, I'm directly involved uh, with the vineyard. Um, I did have, hire a part-time helper this year doing 10 hours a week to help with some of the, the canopy management and pruning and, and training and leaf pulling and all this kind of stuff. But the vines were planted four years ago. This initial planting was a Chardonnay, which is a hybrid variety yeah. of grape that's hardy. It's pretty well tolerant to diseases like downy mildew. So you've got reduced uh, spraying needs and stuff, which we like in Montgomery County. <laughs> So these 275 vines that were planted, uh, you know, the first year, they don't they don't require a whole lot. But once you start training them on, on the trellis, you realize how intensively uh, they need to be managed. And so 
year three, last year, we had our first harvest. I was there three days a week working the vineyard and did uh, about almost 100% of the vine work. And then the superintendent on the grounds crew uh, and the grounds crew took care of the weeds and mowing and, uh, of course, all the spraying. Right. And I'm very uh, grateful for those guys. Okay. And, and so you didn't stop at the vineyard. Somehow you managed to get the grassroots exhibit that I had the great honor of giving the keynote kickoff address when this uh, thing was imagined uh, out at the U.S. Botanic Garden, where it was for many years. And Jeff was in charge of it. Now Jeff's at the University of Maryland, right? So all you Maryland guys sort of stick together there. <laughs> so he must have coerced you or somebody coerced you to now take over the, the grassroots exhibit. But before I get to just doing that, how has it been having a golf course as the centerpiece for what can only be described as agritourism and that golf is a component of that? To me, when I think about using golf courses as multifunctional landscape, as a landscape that many people can enjoy, because, uh, you know, Beth Page has got horse tracks, they got a picnic area, they got polo, all kinds of activities at state parks, much like what you have. That must feel pretty good having that as, as you described it, a gateway, but seeing the land used for a variety of different purposes. Yes, absolutely. And actually, we're under construction now. We'll be finishing this building project in January, and it'll be opening up this spring. So along with, I've got a two quarter acre plots of grapes in the ground now, and I'll be planting probably another at least two acres of grapes in the spring. And the only reason I didn't plant everything four years ago is because we didn't know if we had a project four years ago and wait for all the funding and everything come in. So Okay, so now you got the grassroots exhibit. Yeah, so grassroots. It existed at the National Arboretum for about seven years, brainchild of Kevin Morris with National Turfgrass Federation, and of course, Jeff Reinhardt working alongside him for uh, all those years. Really cool educational exhibit, IPM display, irrigation display. It was so great. So the, the funding ran out for this thing uh, a couple years ago at the, at the Arboretum, and uh, I talked to Jeff, and he, he called me because we had tried to do something uh, like a, a secondary exhibit uh, we had tried to do a number of years ago. It didn't work out, but he wanted to see if we wanted to revisit this, and and so I was like, yes, of course, man. I can't take the entire acre exhibit, but we took a lot of components of it, kind of revamping irrigation display, the IPM, mm -hmm. a bunch of turf plats. We, it was fun to go go down to the National Arboretum and you're driving through D.C. with your trailer and your sod cutter. And <laughs> now we're going into this federal facility and, and starting to rip things out of the ground. And, and uh, it was it was a it was a fun couple of days uh, doing that and getting things over to Needwood Golf Course, where that executive nine that you visited a number of years ago, where we were doing the had done the research out there with these alternative bio rational products, Civitas, all these types of things. Right now, this this educational display will be behind the ninth green after you finish your round of golf over there, and and to be a perfect spot for for screen events, uh, you name it. But perfect. that outreach uh, accessible to the public right off the parking lot there and. We're looking forward to teaching people about the benefits of grass, the history of lawns, and trying to get everybody a little bit smarter. Okay. Well, speaking about getting smarter, listen, we'll get you out of here on this because, you know, one more thing you poked me about was uh, organic matter testing and how you're going about it and trying to think through managing organic matter at these places. Now, the first thing I'll say, John, is with all that traffic, brother, if you got thatch problems, you got organic matter problems you're definitely over fertilizing because yeah. I mean that traffic will wear out the turf as I'm sure you've learned in your many years down there that traffic yes. alone. And I was so pleased to hear you say, you know, you give up the mowing, but you don't give up the rolling because the rolling yeah. is a component 
of managing thatch as well as growth, right? And and having yes. that sort of traffic and wear on it can be a means of managing organic matter. I know you're poking around with this. You won't seemingly get your hands out of growing grass anytime soon. So what are your <laughs> thoughts? First off, you've, you know, been trying to ignite differently. You're, I don't know if you're doing the, you know, the OM246 separation of it, but just from your perspective, why did you get started on it? And, and what are you starting to realize looking at some of the data? So that's why'd you, why'd you get interested in this? Uh, smart folks uh, like, like Michael Woods and, and others who are looking into this, you know, there's something more there that I need to understand because I've, I just felt like doing the same old thing wasn't working. I wanted to get some data and start understanding at every one of our golf courses. Let's, let's find the, the bad greens, the good greens, and maybe one in the middle and find out, is organic matter a problem, number one, and is it a cause or is it the net effect of our practices? So, for example, the way we've always looked at organic matter and what I wanted to help identify was that by having all this data, can we find a cause or a remedy for potentially poor performing putting surfaces? And is there any correlation between that poor performance and even looking at organic matter burned at different temperatures. So maybe a higher temperature burn, more lignin type material. Maybe that's the sponge effect we're trying to mm-hmm. kind of negate. Interestingly, so having this conversation with Micah, he was like, you know, the uh, organic matter would probably more be the end result of good or bad turf rather than the cause of it. And that was a really interesting way to, mm-hmm. to think about it. You assume that high organic matter is a bad thing, but through all of our testing, the highest organic matter levels that we found are on our best greens. And it just means the grass is growing more. Yeah, that's right. And you wonder if any of these greens are struggling, right? That's then where you'd hone in, you know, is it infiltration? Mm -hmm. Is it lack of air? You know, does it feel like the grass can't thrive growing poa down there? Like I'm sure you've got on these greens, (laughs) right? I mean, you're, you've got to be on your pest management. You've got to be on your stress management. And I think, the other part of this, and this is what I want to talk to you about, I'm interested in some of those best greens have some of your highest organic matter, but back to my point about traffic, are you also, I mean, I know the guys that are playing around with the USGA's organic matter system have done a lot of micro sampling on putting greens, right? Within a green, look at the variability within a putting surface by, I don't know, taking like 25 or 50 samples and then, you know, burning them all individually and looking at the mapping the organic matter on a putting surface, right? Did you stumble into anything, John, that that looked like, wow, I got really low organic matter. Oh yeah, see, it's walk on, walk off area. It's It's getting more traffic. Yeah, I think that can be a next step of this. Right now, we're just pulling six little cores per green, and then the lab is burning three of them and keeping three just in case. They're burning the full core. All I can say is the the worst greens we have have the lowest organic matter, and I thought it was going to be the opposite problem. So interesting. Isn't that interesting? And And that's where, you know, we talk about it all the time on this show, John, about the value of data, right? Just get it. And look at yes. it. You don't have to decide anything, right? See what it's trying to tell you. And a lot of times, you know, people talk about it. you got to look at it for a while to really understand it. But right out of the gate, you know, you you had an epiphany that, ooh, this is this is an interesting way to look at it. And, of course, Micah, you know, has a long history of, of looking at things in a way that m- clarify them for so many people. And I think, you know, we're all, all really grateful for that. Now, listen, John, let me wrap this up with – the future of chemical use down there, right? I mean, we, you know, restrictions is how we met. 
You quote unquote, I don't want to say dodge something there, but it certainly put less restrictions on the things that you do. I know you got an eye on it. I know you're a smart enough guy to have already got some strategies in your mind of how you'd begin to handle it. What would you have done? Would the restrictions have come through? And, you know, you want to believe they're a little bit more intelligent. The restrictions will be a little bit more thoughtful because you'll probably have some input on them should they eventually come how are you planning for this and what are your thoughts about how to approach it? Yeah. So like if that day came, I think you you look real hard at the varieties of grass that we're growing. And anytime we do any kind of a conversion or a large project, the additional expense is there because you got to shut down and you're losing revenues. Right. And that just it makes them hugely impactful for us. Right. So everything we do, we try not to close. Right. So talk about changing grass types, talk about raising mowing heights and setting expectations. And, you know, maybe the old uh, one inch fairway turf is, you know, can make a comeback mm-hmm. and everybody gets a good lot, you know. And uh, <laughs> Hey, if it's with a robot, it'll be sure to stand up better. That's that's for that's darn right. sure. So that's basically right. what you're saying is you're going to be stuck with making some wholesale disruptive adjustments to be able to deal with this that are likely going to impact revenue and potentially customer satisfaction, at least for a period of time. Yeah, I think if you if you went full bore with it, I think that's the reality. You'd always try to make that transition and try to reduce the impact, but I think that could provide some difficulty. I think what we have learned with some of our research with the biorationals and, and different kind of alternative uh, chemistries to synthetic pesticides is that we know that they work for us down here in the mid-Atlantic. We know that they work pretty well in the shoulder seasons. Mm-hmm. The funk of the middle of the summer is is the toughest part of that. And that's where I have a little, yeah, <laughs> that's a little challenging. Yeah, that, but that's when your growing climate is best described as an armpit, I believe, yes. would, be, would be, you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of moist and dark and smelly and warm where things will grow uh, really well, especially when you've got susceptible grasses. But even down there, the bent grasses are, you know, you start pushing bent grass down far that that far down I, I wonder if some of the future isn't more warm season grass for you john yes and you know we've done some warm season conversions over the years we've got some latitude and tahoma tees at a number of golf courses bermuda did not work at one of our courses that's in the northernmost part of this mm-hmm. county also happens to be the highest point mm-hmm. lots of desiccation in the winter and very little topsoil on a very rocky site that's the one golf course of ours where it did not work we've got a little bermuda everywhere certainly something we continue to look at hard for me to go start going wholesale on fairways because the potential for winter kill yeah. is still there down yeah, here. Yeah, for sure. The Bermuda we do have, we're overseeding just as an insurance policy. It's not the best, as the textbook would say, mm-hmm. for the Bermuda, right? But we are overseeding with rye traditionally because if we do get winter kill, at least I still have some turf <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, let me get you out of here. In one uh, interview I read in preparation for spending this time with you, you shared a saying in Spanish that you like to say to the crew when you start out. I wonder if you couldn't indulge me here at the end and see if you can recall that phrase that you like to say and that you think everybody working with the Latino, Latinx workforce uh, should be saying when they start their day. Hazlo con ganas hoy, señores. All right, so that's do it with enthusiasm today, guys. Uh, it's so great that they've got you leading them and that you sound like you have as much fire and interest in doing this work as you did walking into Dean Graves' office all those years ago, huh? <laughs> it's been a hell of a ride, Frank. John, thanks for taking the time to join me. It's been such a... I've had a big smile on the whole time. This has been a great time spending with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, man. Me too, dude. See you. All right, take care. All right, John Lobenstein. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. 
Big thanks to John Loganstein. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.